Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, um, Bridget, just a little bit of um, background on this Thursday class. It was originally started um, for Tom, uh, another gentleman named Alex, and another gentleman named Matteo, uh, all overseas, uh, that were interested in what we're doing here. Um, uh, it, Matteo has, it, it's just no longer convenient for Matteo, and Alex has taken a bit of a sabbatical, but we're still doing this, and whoever joins is fine, and uh, if not, sometimes Tom and I just have a pleasant conversation, uh, but I'm glad you joined because it gave us the focus to, to teach another lesson. So this uh, lesson I'm about to teach comes from, um, I think it's 264 preserved poems of awakened monks and nuns from the original Sangha. And so these are very concise um, explanations of their experience of awakening. And maybe you could say they each kind of picked out the most important points for them. And so here, um, I can't remember her name, Makala? Mahakala, um, is preparing another body for cremation, which was common during that time. So in order to prepare a body for cremation, then you had the gruesome duty of actually breaking up the body into certain parts and making it <laughs> more burnable, if you will, easy, more easier to cremate. Um, and also there was some, some dignity involved in that. But anyway, she had that task. And as she's doing it, as she's breaking up this body and preparing it for cremation, she's just reminded again of how fortunate she is to have come across the Dhamma and awaken, gain full human maturity before she ended up like this, meaning that she spent her whole life identifying with this form as her, when in the end, the the utter indignity, not of the form, but the utter indignity of associating with that form, because that form wasn't her, is it? So even there, busting up this body for cremation, she realizes there's nobody here and there never was. She's understanding her own immortality, but in a much um, more skillful way. Take to the Dhamma and awaken, because you're going to end up like this, no matter what you want to believe, no matter what you want to fabricate about yourself. This is the grim reality of Dukkha, sickness, aging, and death. And again, the Buddha taught us that not so we'll be um, uh, despondent with our life, but rather so we'll take to the life like he did, that each and every moment is significant. Why? Because we're going to end up with our heads, as Mahakala describes here. A strong and determined woman prepares a corpse. She breaks thigh bones. She breaks arm, bone, arm bones, cracking open the head like a bowl of curds. She sits with the heat beside her. Really graphic, but for, for a point to make the... There's sometimes when the Buddha wants to hit us directly between the eyes... Or, in this case, somebody who is awakened. Pay attention. It's like a bowl of curds that she sits with a heap beside her. 
Then she says, those rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, foolish in their views, they return to suffering and stress again and again because they don't understand four noble truths. Not for any other reason. She doesn't say that because we don't believe in certain gods or goddesses or ideologies because we're lacking understanding. We're foolish in our views. And because of that, we are prone to return to suffering and stress again and again. Then she says, now reflecting. So understanding truth, rooted in wisdom of four noble truths, abandon craving and clinging. Now determined to never lie with your house, your head cracked open ever again. Determined to never lie with your head cracked open ever again. That's the end of this little poem. Think of this woman in these um, th- these times that weren't very conducive to women awakening. It, again, exponentially more so than today. You know, they, there's still some issues with women's rights, but nothing like there was then. But Siddhartha, in his incredible wisdom and great compassion, said, nonsense. Women are just as much a part of my sangha as all of life. And there were many death death threats put on him and many death threats put on the Sangha and the women who joined. But they all, who stayed with it, just developed the Dhamma in a very ordinary way, but so becoming Arahants, able to teach others. More so by their example, isn't it? This is what Mahakala is exampling. She's saying, in essence, My Dhamma practice is rooted in my example. And I am not going to lie here with my head cracked open. I understand Four Noble Truths. Again, it's just, these little poems are just so remarkable to me how much they, uh, how much Dhamma they present. But that's just me. What do you think, Bridget? I, um, I definitely like learning about the role of women at the time that's uh, uh definitely a helpful context yeah. um and interesting i think i probably could use a little more clarification when she's saying that she will not lay there with her head cracked open what is she saying exactly yeah uh, bridget i'm so i'm um i <laughs> I gave you that because you're, it's pointing to your understanding of what's this all about. What is she referring to? So is she referring to herself in some kind of past tense? No. She's saying, I no longer identify with this form. That's not me. I'm not lying there with my head cracked open because that doesn't represent me. She understands. So she, uh, please. So she's saying... She knows, like if she's basically saying, she knows that when her time comes and her life passes, what's left behind doesn't have anything to do with who her real, I know we kind of went around about the word self yep. the other day, but whether, you know, the soul or the self or whatever, the, the awareness that is Makala, is it? Mahakala, yep. Mahakala. So is she basically saying, I know that that form is not me, 
Yes, yes, that's exactly it. And so there's nothing to be uh, forlorn about or shocked in any way. And what the, the awakened view, at least my view, would be, here's another fortunate human being, meaning someone who is fortunate enough to have a human life. And as I went through um, my, my parents' death um, with a much more well-concentrated mind, that's exactly how I felt. Really how fortunate they were to have the lives they had and how fortunate I was to have known them. And, and that really was it. It wasn't you know anything else. And um, that made their lives much more meaningful to me, but also my own in this moment. That when I'm gone... I, I'm gone. You know, I hope that what what little bit of the Dhamma I brought into the world and maybe a little bit of recovery to those that I helped into recovery is continues. But like I've told my Dhamma teachers, I said, when John Haspel is gone, he's gone. The world's had enough. You know, we don't need a continuation of me because what is that? That's just clinging to views of me and whatever else that might be. But you can continue with the Dhamma, you know, but that's not me, is it? You know, so yes, you're you're asking such an important question because it again it shows that your mind is is inclined towards understanding what are we talking about a self, and ultimately, Bridget, I don't think you've heard this the um, the Datu Vibhaga Sutta, where the Buddha teaches that all human beings are six property people, meaning all human beings are made up of the four elements: earth, wind, fire, and water. The fifth element of space, that's which animates earth, wind, fire, and water. And the sixth element, or the sixth property of consciousness, that's which, which informs the, anima, the animation of those four properties. And that's all a human being can ever be, no matter what we achieve and what we, or how we live our lives. We can never be more than a six-property person. So why is that so important? Because it, a profound understanding of that is the definition of a human being. And it is this six-property person that lives a human life, if they're fortunate enough to be aware of it. What Siddhartha realized upon his awakening was just that, what it meant to be a human being. What did he describe that as most significantly? There is dukkha. The first and most foundational thing that the Buddha thought to teach people, understanding human life more so than any other human being before, I believe, was there is dukkha. And how is that, how is that dukkha manifested? By self-reference to first with this form and then self-reference with this form's ideas that are represented and held in this. So it begins and ends with this self-identification which you're pointing to. And when we can get to the point of moment by moment recognizing that this form and the ideas held in this form are not me. And they don't represent me. The better able we are to avoid that particular end, meaning going to that point where our heads are there, with our, our heads cracked open with no awakening, with no understanding of what it meant. And again, so there's an immediacy to this, but there's also um, a, a very clear direction of what we need to do, understand Four Noble Truths. So again, great question, and I hope my answer wasn't too long and you found it helpful. No, it wasn't too long. It was very helpful. It helped me kind of put it in a context 
where I was thinking at first that I knew that it was probably highlighting a subtle difference or maybe not so subtle, an important difference mm-hmm. between um, like this and, you know, a religion where we can choose to feel suffering about death and aging and fear. You should. And religion for many people can be a way to remove that fear. Yeah. They can make up a whole story yeah. to tell themselves so they can feel like they can live in the moment without being afraid of the future, but yes. it's a trick. Yes. And that in this way, they're saying the same thing, but they're taking away the trick. Yes. And when you're, when you're engaged in that trick, to me, I would, I would characterize it just in this conversation as a horrible trick because it, <laughs> it, it leads people to denying their very life in this moment. And they become preoccupied. I often say that the Buddha could have almost as accurately taught that there is preoccupation with dukkha as saying there is dukkha. Because it is the preoccupation with dukkha that so distracts us from living my life in this moment. Because I'm so concerned about where I'm going and I'm so concerned that I'm driven by my past to where I'm going and where I don't want to be, at least not yet, that I lose my mind. Literally. Excuse me. Meaning, when I, when I say I've lost my mind in this context, it means that I've lost my reference to the, me in this moment because of where my thinking is. So I've lost my mind, correct? And most people live their lives having lost their mind, trying to keep getting it back but not knowing how. And this is why so many people come to me, and, or, and maybe you have, it, this is what inclined you towards at least meditation was, this idea of monkey mind. I can't control my mind. It keeps going from here and there, but we don't understand why. And the Buddha figured it out. It is because of moment by moment I make it. And you could say that is, where am I going to be in the next moment? What is going to happen to me? And if I can't figure it out now, which you can't, if, unless you have a, a way to do it, you have to, you have to develop a strategy that allows for some type, some type of understanding that fits within your confused view. So we can't do it now. We obviously, we've buried people before they're awake and before they're understanding. So we started creating the notion of something beyond life and deep religions or shamanistic religions where we looked up at the skies and started creating animalistic um, uh animalistic but uh, eternal views that are related in myth rather than reality. And again, this has been going on since humankind. It was during the Buddhist time that this was just as prevalent and he awakened in that same environment that we're in. And it's, and it's just like you described it. When we get caught up in a religion, and I'm not against religions, I'm just saying that this is not it. But when we get caught up in religions or expect that even what the Buddha taught to be a religion in some way, to, to provide salvation for a, a broken or lost self or soul, that's not Dhamma practice. And there's times when we have to be that clear with it. Um, not to get into it, Tom, but it kind of came up last week in our class, and it comes up often in different ways. But it, again, it's getting to just that point that you're realizing now, Bridget, at some point we have to get to 
then maybe you could even say, well, how do we get to that point of recognizing and abandoning eye-making? It's through concentration and this framework that we're developing that we call integrating the Eightfold Path. It is so in this moment that I can recognize that what's arising in my mind and what's arising in my life is not me. I'm not taking it personal. And in that way, I am able to feel deeply whatever is appropriate for this moment. So in this moment, when I recognize my own demise, which, by the way, I think more and more about, but not in a melancholy way. In fact, it's, when I think about it now, and it's not like, oh, my God, it could be in the next moment, but it is. It could be in the next moment. It's likely going to be in the next five or ten years, right? I mean, you know, that's just reasonable. This is so incredible that I have. Again, I honestly feel this way, that just this moment is so much more meaningful to me than the, than the, the previous moment. And it's not like I'm, my life is building in exhilaration. Um, I've spoken at, um, I, I can't remember what I added up like one time, like thousands and thousands of 12-step meetings. So it's no big deal to me. Um, and I've taught over 2,000 Dhamma classes. So again, no big deal, even though I take both very seriously. I never come to a Dhamma class unprepared. Um, just yesterday, I was asked, I'm going to Long Island for a few days to see a, a, a Tom Carlson. You met Tom, and Bridget, you might... No, nah, I don't think you know Tom. He comes online occasionally. but um, And so we're going to go visit him for a few days. And he asked me, he, he happens to know a lot of people and some rather, you could say important or famous people. Um, and so he asked me to do two things when I'm out there. I thought I was going to go on vacation. He said, would I speak to a group, uh, to a 12-step group out there of rather prominent 12-steppers in the morning, next Wednesday, and then at night would I teach a Dhamma class to 12 people? And of course, it, to me that, and I almost was brought to tears by him asking me because I can't think of something more meaningful for me to do. And again, if somebody came, I used to be in a roofing business, and if he said, can you come out here and you can spend Tuesday over my house, we'll feed you well, but Wednesday would you go up and fix my roof, I would think quite differently about going out there. Um, well, maybe not. But again, to me, it's, it's just such a meaningful thing to live this way. Um, and you're all developing that. You know, that's the whole point of the Dhamma, to not get to some point where we can start enjoying our lives or having some understanding. It's to do it now and to understand these short little teachings are designed to say, yeah, you can do it now, but hurry up and do it. You know, take to the Dhamma and awaken. Again, there's many suttas. The Bahia Sutta is another one, but you're right to see it in that way. So. Yeah. Thank you, Bridget. Again, there's no urgency, uh, but we should remind ourselves that, you know, this is, this is for me that I'm doing this. And the more that I can do it, the, again, meaning the more I can just engage in a triple refuge, the Buddha, the Dhamma, meaning ongoing practice and participating in a Sangha, we're going to do it. And I would say, you know, you're, you're both good examples, living examples for yourself of putting in the right effort and developing the Dhamma, you know. And again, I see that, and I don't know many, again, off the top of my head, I can't think of many people who have really developed the Dhamma to a, 
moment-by-moment um, moment impactful way than people that have had regular Dharma practice. And I'm, now I'm referring to people that kind of come and go and they uh, are able to maintain kind of a, uh, a basic practice, but they have no real development. And that's okay, that's fine. But those of us that deeply engage in it, it's called right effort, do develop this understanding. And Siddhartha guaranteed it. He said, really said, just do this and do it, you know, as much as you can, as best as you can, and you will develop this. And, uh, and Bridget, in uh, a, a fairly short period of time, you've developed a Dhamma to such a profound level that you could even ask that question. <laughs> Thank you. Dhamma teacher Tom, what do you think? So I was on mute. Uh, well, first of all, I just thought of the, the irony of this passage. Like, so Bridget, we were talking, uh, so Queen Elizabeth just died um, about half an hour before this class started. Yeah. She deserves a bow. So I, it was quite, you know, so first of all, I, in my meditation, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not sort of, I think my parents and other generations will be more affected by it, but um, but it's still obviously a, a seismic moment in in our country, you know, and somebody that's always been there. So during my meditation, I was, you know, it was just interesting that monkey mind was happening. I was being drawn to it, but then I was being drawn. I was creating stories around it. It wasn't Queen Elizabeth dying. It was. I was just thinking about mortality quite a lot. I was thinking especially about my own parents. And I think about my own parents' mortality a lot nowadays. Um, and not that they're sick or anything, but I don't know. I just can't imagine them not being here, right? Um, mm. And so, yeah, I, just, I was dealing a lot with that in my meditation. It was, it was the sort of the main thing that was distracting me. Um, anyway, and then the, 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 the sutta itself. Um, yeah, I was glad you asked that question, actually, on on the uh, the meaning of it, because it was a little bit cryptic for me as well. But but I yeah I, I I you know that that idea of sitting there with the heap beside her, so sort of sort of realizing that all of that junk that she would have carried around with her and just identified with so much, she can be a lot more um, just observing of it, I guess, mm -hmm. and and you know, um, um, disconnected from it. Um, so yeah, that, and, and then I think just, just the, the final line about, um, you know, determined never to lie with your head cracked open ever again. And I think that, that sense of, um, yeah, the determination is so important for me because the, the Dharma and, and we've had, so this, this particular group on a Thursday has, had you know at times it's been quite big and then it's been quite small and then you know people just come and go and it's always um it is what it is and it's fine but it it you, you know i just i just know that um this practice really reaps benefit for those who really commit to it and are able to you know, the more you practice the more it's it's such a law of human nature that the more you the more you put in you yeah. will get out more and and even my own so um last week when we had class i was 
uh, I'd had a bit of a difficult, stressful sort of week or so myself. And I was just, I just had to look at the life, you know, I'd been living. And, and it was, it, there was certain, it wasn't, I was still meditating, but there were distractions in my, so many distractions in my life. Um, and again, I just noticed, I, I just sort of starting by from last Thursday, I really was like, no, I'm going to, I need to cut out certain things. I've wow. just got to do this. I, I, there's no excuses. I've just got to stop. Um, you know, and I, I cut out a lot of my screen time over the last week. Um, and, you know, just cut out just generally some things that were a bit, a bit dis- distracting, let's say. Um, and I've reaped the benefits. Yeah. And I've had a far better yeah. week than I had the previous week. And, yes, and yes, it's yes. just, it's just, it's so um, self-encouraging the practice because you just know, just do the work oh, and, <laughs> and, and you will benefit from it. And then every time you get distracted and you forget to do the work, you'll, you'll, as a, you know, as it says, you know, return to suffering and stress again and again, as it says in the sutta, right? So it's, it will just happen. And you don't beat yourself up about it. It's just happened. And that's just a natural consequence of not of ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So it's, I don't know, it's just such a great practice because you, 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 you have this opportunity to see clearly why you've strayed and why you're stressed because you're distracted, but you, you don't, you don't, you, you just, and as John would always say, be kind to yourself and say, well, look, we've got these minds that naturally want to be distracted the whole time. So every time you are distracted, it's not, you haven't done anything wrong. I mean, you're not a bad person. You've just, you've just, you've just forgotten basically. And you've just deprioritized it. And so just coming back um, to, to that. So, yeah, so I've just had a, a week of, of having had, a, I mean, I'm generally, I'm pretty focused on my practice now, but I just noticed when I let things go just a tiny bit that it, it, um, I just it's just a reminder to to come back come back to the dharma so and these classes are uh, uh you know what encouraged me to do that yeah. um, apart from the, the results of my own practice of course yeah so yeah that is a drop the mic moment yeah that that really was, was you know two or three minutes of the best description of how dharma works than i think the, even better than i've ever given tom and uh, you tend to do that Right. Uh, you do you, um, but I, I mean Bridget. You know, I I know you heard that, but again, Tom, you described developing Dharma practice. That up until this past week, your concentration wasn't quite enough to see what you just described, but it was because of ongoing Dharma practice, and it should be just as you described it. You recognize distractions, and you put them aside. It wasn't like you you were. Um, kind of extricating some some mental tumor, you know, it wasn't painful. It was just, yeah, this is, you know, this is no yeah. longer serves me. And you recognize yeah. it. You said, my life I mean, is so much better for simple things, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's something you said, uh, this is, uh, you know, this registered with me a year or so ago. It was that we, we when we want to stop something, we ruminate so much over why it will be difficult to stop or why we should or shouldn't stop or why do we have this problem in the first place. And I remember you just saying, just just stop. 
<laughs> don't overthink it. Just stop. No, recognize it as being not, you know, right effort or not right view or not right action or whatever it might be, and just let go. Don't don't try and analyze where it's come from or why you're still doing it. Yeah, and that was really helpful because it's like just stop. And then any time you forget to just stop, just stop the next time. Like, <laughs> Rather than That's thinking, it. oh no, I forgot, I'm useless or whatever. So that was really, really helpful. Just so, yeah. so simple and just so clear. Yeah. And things become easier to stop when yeah. you take. Yeah. You really do. Yeah, it becomes more familiar, and and yeah. you're actually conditioning your conditioned mind to stop. Yeah. You know, and it, it really is just that way. You know, this. You, I know you've both heard me say that this moment holds the potential to incline my mind towards further ignorance of Four Noble Truths or incline my mind towards awakening. But in order to do that, to, to um, be present for that moment of inclination, requires concentration. And a mind that's not concentrated will likely, I mean, maybe it could, but that will likely not be able to make that choice because it, the, the pull towards continued ignorance is included in the word. You know, we are we are compelled to ignore our own ignorance, and the the um, much of the world's uh, systems and subsystems, meaning uh, things like Twitter and Facebook, have become subsystems. Um, they continue to promote ignoring ignorance, and again, it's not this; they're not right or wrong, but it's up to us to recognize, just as Tom described, and just as you're describing, Bridget. What to recognize is simply a distraction. And, you know, and it, and to me, it's not a badge of honor that I never tweet or Facebook. Um, I just recognize that I've never had to, and, and I think my life is full without it. You know, but again, to be honest, I had, I used to post to Facebook and Twitter. I don't think I do anymore. But, yeah, it's just, it's just the point. We gain control of our minds, and we can do with our minds what we want, meaning... When a loved one dies, I can feel sad without the need for me to feel anything different because I know it's appropriate. And I won't let anybody take it away from me. But I also won't blame anybody or anything for my feelings. I'll just have them. You know, you mentioned something, Tom, about your parents. I used to be... Uh, well, let me just tell a quick story now. When I was 14 years old, I saw death for the first time. I mean, I certainly had heard about it, but I went to my first funeral, excuse me. And, you know, now that I think probably later in life than most, but anyway, that's the way it was. Um, and it happened to be of my best friend who was like a brother to me. He was Ken Dada. He was like 14, 14 years old. He died suddenly in his sleep and the circumstances were such that I was, I blamed myself, even though I wasn't responsible. That, another story, but I, I was able to resolve that after I sobered up. But anyway, I still remember right now um, what it was like, the, the, the church at the funeral, and it was a rather small church, and you walked in this one end, and I could see all the way to Ken Dodd's casket, and it was an open casket, and I had, which was rare in a church, but, and it was the first time I ever saw a dead body, and my first thought as this 14-year-old walking up the steps and seeing this dead body was, holy, I'm going to have to see my parents like that one day. And it instilled such a profound fear in me that one day I was going to have to face that with the knowledge that, yeah, everybody dies. And it, 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 it guided my thinking and my fear for so many years until I came to the Dhamma. And when my mother died, you know, which was 
20 years ago, I was just this great appreciation for having known this woman. And the same thing with my dad. It was just, and my dad I hadn't seen for a couple of weeks before he died, and I used to see him at least once a week. And again, I walked into to the wake, and I hadn't seen my dad for, I never saw him in a, in a casket, right? Open casket. And I, you know, my mind kind of went back to Ken Dodd, but it went to my dad. And I was, I was just so fortunate to have known this man. And I think, and I was sad but that he was gone. But it was, it was a sadness based on that good fortune, wasn't it? And Tom, I think you're going to feel the same way. And Bridget, you, again, we don't, we don't run away from our feelings at all. And this is the first practice. And I would say for the first time in my life, you know, I'm an addict and an alcoholic, that I was able to actually feel my feelings without the need to run away from them or grab after more of them. And that's, that is true liberation, isn't it? As we learn first in the four foundations of mindfulness, we establish that in our meditation practice. You know? And then just as we, as we talk about in our practice here. And by the way, I just want to point out, because I'm thinking about it, this class, and I guess you could say this about every class, but this class was such a, an example of the triple refuge of remembering that a human Buddha awakened, and so we can, that he left his Dhamma in this brilliant little poem now, and, and our, our Sangha here, you know, our Thursday Sangha, but in our larger Sangha that we're all a part of. This is the Triple Refuge, and it's pretty damn powerful, I think. <laughs> uh, any other questions or comments? It's good to see your smiling faces. Um, yeah, Tom, I, I don't really have now let, let, just one thought if you could hang on just so I can finish yeah, it sure. and, uh, sure, sure. and it, it's, it's not something that we're hiding from you, Bridget it's just a continuation of our conversation from last week so we'll finish with Meta as we always do as soon as I can call it up so these are, these are the Buddha's words on Meta from the Karaniya Meta Sutta and it should be remembered that the, the environment, both political and cultural, were very similar uh, to our times as they were during the Buddhas. There was a lot of unrest and a lot of distrust, a lot of hatred, and the Buddha really brought peace to his Sangha. And he said this, This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, 
spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.